If you have a Bible, now would be the right time to open it to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 23. And I've got a little explaining to do uh, before we get into the message, but I'd like to, before I do that, point out a couple of matters regarding our sanctuary that are new. If you will notice, when you look up, you no longer see the legs of invading UFOs coming to get us. <laughs> they have been cut, and so the vents have been moved up. We will see when it gets to be May or June whether that was a good idea. <laughs> I will suffer more than any of you, so I'm with you on that. The second thing you will notice if you look closely is we now have a communion table and a baptismal font. Isn't that wonderful? And one of the things that Pam and I laugh about is what we have used for baptism uh, at Spring Meadows, and we left it when we left the first time we left, is a silver bowl that was given to us uh, when we got married in 1979. So now we have a new baptismal font and a new bowl that we can put water in. So that not that great? Now, a little explanation as we, before I read the text, which is 2 Samuel 7, or 23, 1 through 7, that is what we will read. I know that some of you thought he's going to read all four chapters. And notice that the sermon has six points, which means it's twice as long. Why did I do this? Why did I make this choice? Am I just tired of David and want to move on? No, because that is the way the book of 2 Samuel is structured. You could stop at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 20 and go immediately to 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, and it would flow like a river. But these four chapters were added by the author of the book of 2 Samuel for the purpose of making a strong thematic and theological point. And I hope you will hear that as we look at it together. Some scholars who are of the more left-wing bent, at least theologically, see this as just appendices sort of uh, patched on to the end of 2 Samuel because they didn't know where else to put it. But we will see uh, the mention of Mephibosheth in chapter 21 and so what occurs in chapter 21 more than likely happened around 2 Samuel chapter 9, but was not included there. And so the writer, uh, literarily and artistically, has structured these four chapters to wrap up the book of 2 Samuel. We will not be reading anything but chapter 23, 1 through 7, and I suggest when you go home this afternoon that you read it all, uh, it's wonderful reading, but I decided to do this. I've never done this in my life, so you better pray hard. <laughs> but with that said, hear now the word of the Lord. And, and essentially, I'm going to go on and tell you the theme, that I, one of the themes that I think is overriding in these four chapters, and it's this. God blessed David and his kingdom immeasurably. But he also chastened David and his kingdom. And often the blessings that David experienced came as a result of the chastening hand 
of the Lord. No discipline received in the present time is ever uh, fun to go through, but it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness uh, for God's people. Hear now the word of the Lord, chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of, God, of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help for will he not cause, excuse me, to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to the preaching of this, your word, and we pray that it would find its target, that we would be open, responsive, and teachable, and ready to hear what you have to say to us through your word. Please help us understand that this is how you speak to us today, uh, through the exposition and preaching of your holy word. And we pray that because we've been here and because we've heard this word, it will produce fruit in us which will redound to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you want to follow along and turn back to chapter 21, that is where we're going to start. Let me say something about the outline that I have for you in the bulletin. Notice that it has blessings in famine and drought, blessings through David's heroes, David the king sings, David the prophet speaks, blessings through David's heroes, blessings in pestilence. And so this is how these four chapters are structured. I'm doing a little teaching here. I'll get to the preaching in a minute. This is how they are structured literarily. And so you'll notice they're like three concentric circles. Uh, David talked about the eight circles of Gnosticism this morning or eight circles of knowledge or whatever. Here we only have three. <laughs> and they are, if you look to the middle of the page, uh, point number three, point number four, are so sort of the inner core of all that's being said. The pestilence and drought in chapter 21 and the blessings and pestilence in chapter 24 are sort of the outer circle. And then as you move in, it speaks of David's mighty men, the heroes that are remembered in Israel. So that's what you got going on in these four chapters. Let's get on our horse and begin the journey as we look at chapter 21. I want to give you a quick summary of chapter 21. David is faced in chapter 21 with a very difficult 
decision. When a three-year-long famine ravages the land, and after much prayer, Yahweh informs David that the famine was due to Saul's killing of the Gibeonites. Now, what Saul had done in killing the Gibeonites was a violation of the treaty Israel made with the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9. If you want to read that, you can go back and look at it. But Saul violated that treaty, and therefore, uh, that is why God says to David, um, you're having drought. In other words, one of the signs of a covenant curse in the Old Testament was drought. Uh, and, and drought uh, was a curse of covenant disobedience. And so because Saul had done what he had done, therefore they were experiencing famine because of a drought. And in response, now, David begins to act here, but I want you to notice as you read it this afternoon or you want to read it now, that he never asks Yahweh anything. He takes control of how to respond to this violated covenant. And so he asks the Gibeonites um, what, would, uh, what would be the right thing to do to respond to this violation of this covenant. And so he summons them, and they demand that seven sons of Saul be handed over for public execution. David agrees and hands over the men, though he spares Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, because he had made a covenant with Jonathan. After their execution, Rizpah, the mother of two of the men killed, mourns them and defends their corpses from wild animals. When David hears of Rizpah's action, he gives the bodies of the seven Saulides, along with Saul and Jonathan, a proper burial in the ancient grave in Benjamin, at which God answers prayers for the land. The second half of this chapter focuses upon David's mighty men who uh, defeated four other gigantic Philistines like uh, Goliath uh, who were descended like Goliath from Rapha in Gath. And so those two things happened in chapter 21. As David begin, I mean, as the writer of Samuel begins toward moving toward what's going on here. Now, did God really manipulate the weather to punish uh, sin? Can natural disasters be due to the sinful actions of human beings? Those are questions that often arise. The connection here between the famine and Saul's blood guilt fits with the mindset in the ancient world that all natural disasters are due to a divine being being uh, upset and expressing divine displeasure. And so when famines occur or when natural disasters occur, a tornado destroys a town, uh, forest fires uh, cause the evacuation of a city, uh, or farmers lose their crops, unfortunately sometimes the most sincere and well-meaning believers have been tempted to interpret modern disasters as evidence of God's displeasure or attributed them to disaster victims. They got destroyed because they should be destroyed. 
Um, we hear this often that some statesman for Christianity, usually anybody who I would never want to open their mouth and say anything about Christianity, is the person the media always goes to, right? Uh, to stir it up, uh, whether it's AIDS or anything else. And so how do we do this? How do we look at this? Let me give you an example of a disaster that occurred uh, right after I left New Orleans. It was called Hurricane Katrina. And it ravaged New Orleans in 2005. New Orleans is shaped like a bowl. And so because the levees had not been uh, repaired and had not been uh, maintained, when the hurricane came, it was only a Category 3. That's not a real powerful hurricane. But because of the deterioration of the levees, New Orleans flooded. And the only place that didn't flood was the French Quarter where all the sin takes place. <laughs> Everything else was underwater. And so, of course, some Christians suggested that the reason the disaster hit New Orleans was because New Orleans is a hub for jazz music. And jazz music is of the devil. Who else could listen to it and love it? Um, also, a lot of people attributed the disaster in New Orleans to Mardi Gras. If you've ever been to Mardi Gras, you might be inclined to agree that that's pretty rough stuff. I always stayed on the smaller Mardi Gras, uh, family-oriented uh, Mardi Gras celebrations, just so you know. But to counter this suggestion, some have pointed out that New Orleans French Quarter the area known for jazz music, the area known for bawdiness, called the Big Sleazy for by everyone who lives there, Mardi Gras celebrations, nightclubs, all kinds of other clubs, uh, was actually the least affected area in the whole city of New Orleans because it's on high ground. The hardest hit areas of the city were the most impoverished. And if the hurricane was judgment for these sins, then God missed his target and drowned the poor instead. Now, some of us like to be Job's friends, Job's counselors, who try to make a one-to-one -one correspondence and connection between your suffering and your sin. You see, the reason you're suffering is you sin. Now, in some cases, that might be appropriate. Some of the things that we sin and do do cause direct consequences to us but we are not wise enough we do not know enough we are not almighty God and we can't make those distinctions and so if anyone ever asks you simply say God is sovereign and anything needful he gives and anything we don't need he takes away and that God rules and reigns and let God be God and so that may not be a satisfactory answer to you, but that is the wise answer given the situation here. And so the fact that some biblical passages do connect disasters to God's chastisement, instead of attempting to pronounce judgment on victims of natural disasters, we just need to repent of our own sins. I think that would be the smarter course in due time. Now, did God require the death of Saul's sons? He never said for that to happen. But the impaling of Saul's sons before the Lord 
does not have the desired effect of immediately ending the famine. So we get no indication that God desired the death of Saul's children. The actions that precipitate God's answering prayers for the land are David's burial of Saul, Jonathan, and the Saulites slain by the Gibeonites. Now the second part of the story deals with the battle and the uh, undoing of the Philistines, and I don't know when this occurred. Apparently there were more giants than just Goliath. He must have been the king of all giants, the warrior of all warriors, but they were defeated by David's mighty men, and so they get uh, props uh, for doing so. Now let's move on to chapter 22. And chapter 22 is a psalm. It's a song David wrote. And it records a song uh, that is about praising God for delivering him from his enemies. And the psalm seems to reflect on the whole D David story. Throughout the song, David credits God with his success and expresses his complete reliance upon him. David further declares that he has been faithful to his God and he has lived righteously. David comes perilously close to claiming uh, complete and utter righteousness where it looks like he's saying, I never sinned, that I generated. But you've got to understand when you're reading your Old Testament and you see the word righteous, the word righteous means to be in a covenantal relationship with God. You are right with him through the covenant. You still sin, but you use the given covenantal um, responses to that sin. You offer a sacrifice, you repent of it, and so though you were a sinner, you were still regarded in right standing with God if you were a member of the covenant. In this case, uh, the old covenant, anticipating the new covenant which would later come. But to be righteous in the Old Testament sense does not mean to be 100% obedient to where I can present God with an absolutely pure and brilliant righteousness and therefore he owes me blessing. No, that's not what David's saying, not what he's meaning. But that passage, if you read Psalm 22, when you get home, you will see where David speaks of his righteousness. But that passage is actually anticipating the coming of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was what? Absolutely pristine and gloriously righteous. He never sinned. He never disobeyed God. He kept the covenant uh, for us so that we could be declared righteous because we are in union with him. In other words, uh, Christ himself as the one to whom David points, the Messiah who comes, does uh, obey God perfectly, does deserve absolute blessing and adulation for doing so, but rather than getting blessing, he got what? Cursed, because he took our sin upon himself. And so David's psalm, this actually, this psalm is very similar to Psalm 18. And it's also very similar to the Song of Moses in Exodus 18 and 19. And so that's what's going on in chapter 22. Chapter 23 concludes with a list 
of David's mighty men who uh, provide so, and, and also uh, provide some amazing anecdotes of Israel's military history. Remarkable for his absence in this listing of mighty men is who would you guess if you've been listening? Joab. Joab. <laughs> Poor old Joab didn't make the list. He cut everybody's throat and ended up cutting his own, I guess. But Joab did not make the, the top ten list. And, and so, therefore, remarkable for his absence is Joab. He is never mentioned. This is perhaps due to the conflicts he had with the king. Uh, most remarkable, though, also, if you read this list carefully, is the inclusion of Uriah the Hittite. Who is Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba's husband, the one whom David had position to be slaughtered in a battle. Now, when you hear David claiming righteousness and then you read stories of his sin, his adultery, his programming, <laughs> murder, and a lot of the things that David did were evil. Uh, so David, in his personal life, was righteous because he was in covenant with Yahweh. That is a covenant standing that still required sacrifices when we sin, they sinned, a confessing of that sin, and uh, living before God with a desire and a heart to please him. And if you read the Psalms, you'll see that set of David. David is such a mixed bag. He's so flawed. He's so heroic. But he's so flawed. And he is not our hope. And any preacher that ever stands up and tells you to be like David, don't listen to him. You're not to be like David. You're to be like the one whom David pointed to, Christ. Christ is our Savior. Christ is our Lord. And so we've got, see how fast we're going? You cannot believe how fast we're going. Somebody said, someone who lives very close to me told me the scripture readings were getting a little bit long and the sermons were getting a little bit detailed. Now, there would have been a time when I would have challenged that and said, don't tell me how to preach God's Word. But having been humbled many times, I have learned to listen to the voice of the one who loves me most on earth. And so we are moving forward. So we've covered that. Uh, now we're into David's last words in the, the text that we just read. Chapter 23 begins with what it calls David's very last words. Though David does not make a death or does make a deathbed speech in 1 Kings, but he must have said this after. I don't know how he could have. The poem stands together with David's song of the last chapter and the epicenter of concentric structure of appendices is clear here. At the heart of the structure is a theological perspective on the David story, focusing on God's central role in the story. Both poems emphasize that Israel was delivered and sat secure due to God's initiative and gracious work on the anointed's behalf. Even the gift of mighty men to fight for David are God's gift to him and God's blessing to him. So David has really nowhere to claim credit. 
These poetic last words are explicitly introduced as inspired prophecy. Later, biblical books will explicitly refer to David as a prophet, with the book of Chronicles referring to him as a man of God, a title for a prophet. Uh, David uh, is further called anointed by the God of Jacob and the hero of Israel's songs. Anytime you see anybody in the Bible referred to as uh, in relation to Jacob, it's not a compliment. Saying David is from Jesse is not a compliment. By the way, there's only one person in the Bible that I'm aware of maybe two, Judas, but uh, Jacob, what a scoundrel that guy was. If you ever want to read uh, uh, a narrative that will make you wince at this con man who God, Yahweh, loved uh, and called to bless, referring David and the God of Jacob is not a compliment. It's recognizing David's wayward heart and his sinfulness. And so... The oracle given to David extols a ruler who is righteous and fears God in verses 3 and 4, setting up Yahweh's moral expectations for his anointed. David then goes on to assert that his house is like this with God, as evidenced by the everlasting covenant God made with him, echoing Nathan the prophet's uh, word to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16. God's word is sure and he will be faithful to his promises to David. This covenant guarantees David's deliverance and satisfaction. David contrasts his standing with that of the wicked who are cursed like thorns destined for the flames. David's final words remind the reader of the royal ideal and contrast with evil men who are called the sons of Belial. The righteous are secure with an everlasting covenant, while the wicked are destined for destruction. After the great fallings of David and his son, the poem expresses hope that Israel's king can be God's agent despite human shortcomings. As the story continues into the book of Kings, all future Israelite kings are measured by the Davidic ideal though many will prove to be wicked. Thus, we still need a Savior. And David is not it. Now, the thing that I think is important to remember as we go through this summary is to remember, uh, in particular, uh, the song of David in chapter 22, as well as this prophecy. And... It points ultimately to the gospel. The Bible affirms that there is no one righteous, no, not one. That all of us have fallen short of God's standard and do not merit, achieve, or deserve any kind of salvation from God. The key to understanding this dynamic relationship with God is the acknowledgement of the psalmist in Psalm 22 that all he has is from God. Deliverance, protection, talent, success, all of these are due to God's gracious giving. And all that we have comes from God. And we cannot glory 
in anything we do. We cannot take credit because of anything we do. But as I said earlier, this ultimately points to the Messiah. And the Messiah is coming to achieve for us a salvation that we could never measure up to. Now, finally, we're in chapter 24, and something happens here that's pretty interesting. In chapter 24, David's song, crediting God with all of his successes, and the list of the mighty men on whom David relied through with the Lord brought deliverance, the book of Samuel closes with a story of David initiating a census to see how many able-bodied men he could use in a war. And similar to the famine which resulted from David's sin, David sins here, and it results in another calamity. Now, the text does say God, Yahweh, incited David to take a census. Now, you got a problem with that. <laughs> because God cannot be tempted with evil, cannot sin it's impossible there's not much that's impossible for God to do but one of the things God cannot do is sin so how could God incite David to take a census and get off the hook for not inciting sin that's a problem isn't it have you thought about it it's a pretty serious problem and unbelievers and biblical critics will come to you and say it's very similar to the concept of Pharaoh. Remember that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and who else hardened his heart? God did. But there's a difference between actively inciting David and permitting David to do what was already in his heart. And so rather than seeing this inciting as God taking the initiative and moving by his power David to take this census, it is rather God removes his hand of protection from David and allows David to do what is in David's heart. Now what's so bad about numbering the number of soldiers you have in your army? Wouldn't that be smart? Wouldn't you want to know what size army you had for security to live in these dangerous times where there are always uprisings, always insurgencies, always war to be fought? Enemies all around. Why would it be wrong for David to do this? I'm waiting. <laughs> Why? It was, uh, it was forbidden, and the reason why it was wrong is because David wasn't looking to Yahweh to protect him. He was relying upon his own administration, his own army, and he was basing his security and kingship upon what he could see in his army, not what Yahweh had said to him and promised him. And so David, in this case, became the uh, poster child for self-reliance. He numbers his soldiers which was an act of independence from God. And so a famine resulted from Saul's sin. David's sin here results in another calamity as a plague ravages Israel. God gave him three choices, and he took three days of a plague. And as uh, the plague rages on, um, 
An amazing thing happens. The plague rages on, and 70,000 Israelites died. About this time, there were 6 million people in Israel. Uh, the army numbered somewhere around 1.5 million, so it was a sizable military force. But 70,000 people died. David repented of it, and he obediently builds a new altar to the Lord in Jerusalem. God permanently stopped the plague and listened to David's prayer for the land. And what is more, the very site where David builds this altar becomes the place where the temple in Israel was built, where the altar in Israel was built, therefore prophetically preparing for the coming of Solomon and the coming of the construction of the temple on that very spot where David repented. And so there we have it, a strong but short, that was really short, wasn't it? Y'all listened really fast today. But David is probably the most famous thing that I remember ever being preached to me that David ever said was in speaking of sacrifices, he said, um, I will not offer Yahweh anything that costs me nothing. David had a heart for the Lord, and in many respects, sin and all, he still worshipped, adored, and was a man after God's own heart. I mean, if you're striving for, I, I remember when I was preaching a young man, really young, and uh, I had preached a message on uh, Romans 7 discussing the struggle that we have with sin. You know, uh, I, I don't want to do what I do, and I, I find myself still doing it, and I, I preached that message, and I thought, that's, that's a powerful message. Everybody, else. well, a woman met me at the back door, and I'd never seen her before at church. And she was one of those faces you looked at and thought, she ain't tracking with me. She's not buying what I'm saying. And so she said to me, <laughs> you know what, Pastor? I heard your message, and I heard your talk with Christians struggle about sin. She said, but I'm Pentecostal, and here's what I would tell you as a Pentecostal. In the past seven years since I've been a Pentecostal, I have not sinned, no, not one time. I was thinking inside, I bet I could make you sin in five seconds. <laughs> but I said to her, well, you must be very proud of that. And she said, yes, I am. <laughs> and I wanted to say, bingo. <laughs> we are all strugglers. We are all strugglers. There's no perfection in this room except the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are all fellow strugglers, but God loves sinners so much that he was willing to lose his son to save us. That is the greatest blessing we all enjoy. Now would you bow your heads and close your eyes please. Heavenly Father we thank you for this uh, 
books of First and Second Samuel as we have been in them for weeks. We thank you for the narrative we see here and the things we have learned and the joy that we now live on this side of the cross. We have seen uh, David's true son and Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and we're looking forward to his return when he will make us perfect in every way. And he will resurrect our bodies. They will be transformed into his glorious body. And we will dwell forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will experience a life of just grace and glory and unbroken and ceaseless joy. Father, we do pray that we will see ourselves needing Jesus far more than we ever thought we did, and that we would grow in our dependence and clinging to him and him only. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as those who, uh, who are overwhelmed with your goodness, your mercy, your grace that pursues us every day. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.